to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. And we're here today with an awesome guest. His name is Gabriel Wynant. He is an assistant professor of history at the University of Chicago, as well as the author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America, out now on Harvard University Press. Welcome to the show, Gabe. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, huge um, pleasure. What you what you do? I know it, this podcast is going to come out a little bit later, but we just had a very beautiful loyalty day over yeah. the weekend. So, um, what did you guys do for loyalty day? We had a beautiful loyalty day march here in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago. Sure. Um, it started in uh, well, it started at Jewel Osco Supermarket, and then we went to the University of Chicago Police Department mm-hmm. um, and. You know, express your loyalty to express, them. Express their loyalty outside there for a while. Sure, sure. Um, I marched by the university administration building and then to um, there's a kind of community center called the Experimental Station where there's a, a union recognition campaign going on right now. So we, we, we wound up there. Very cool. Like, yeah, showing your loyalty to the labor movement. I- I uh, I showed my loyalty. I pledged allegiance to the flag. I got my Blue Lives Matter flag out. I walked around with it a little bit. And then I ran into this other march that was happening. Like all these, I don't know, labor people and like kids with red flags and stuff. I didn't know what happened, but then they beat the shit out of me. So my loyalty day was a little weird, man. I got to say, I don't yeah. know. I don't know what else, what was happening out there. Well, that's what's keeping you, keeping you honest. You know, you're yeah. in that conservative, conservative union. Right. Yeah. That's we can't, true. we have to have some countervailing forces or you're going to turn into <laughs> fucking Archie Bunker, you know? Pretty sure that in my union, there would be more uh, people celebrating loyalty day than May Day, unfortunately. But so it goes. This is the United States of America. That's how it goes. That's right. And we have pledged our loyalty to it all over again. Um, what's I the just story went to some of, barbecues. Uh, what's the story of Loyalty Day? Was was that the thing that first happened in the 30s? Uh, yeah, I believe it came out of the uh, Red Scare. Mm. Let's see. Yeah, it was set uh, in order to counter International Workers Day yeah. and was conceived in the height of the second Red Scare. Oh, so the 1950s. Yeah, so just Labor Day wasn't enough. They had to have an anti-May Day. (laughs) I mean, Labor Day sounds too much like, you know, you're still thinking about organized labor, right? Right. You got to have something that's like, actually, no, uh, this is this is fascism. Sorry. No, don't get it twisted. You remember uh, maybe eight, nine years ago, something like that, when Eric Cantor, the Republican in in Congress, Mm. I think he tweeted on Labor Day something like, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to quite get it right, but something like, I just want to, you know, celebrate Labor Day uh, with, you know, paint with by honoring all the small business people out there. Who- <laughs> they have 364 days of their own, please. Let's just have one. <laughs> Literally oh every other day is small business owner entrepreneur day in America. God, I'm so black pilled. Yeah, I think we all are. But, um, you know. That is what it is. We're going to profess our loyalty to the international working class, as we always do on this podcast. Um, so, yeah, let's get in. Let's get into it. Get there's into a lot it. here. And Great book. lot to talk it, about. It's extremely of, uh, our shit. A lot of terrain that we've talked about on this podcast before with, uh, you know, the, the shift out of the post-war 
compact uh, and consensus and uh, dissolution of that in, in the 1970s into the 1980s and the rise of something else. You know, when people talk about neoliberalism, it's hard to really understand what they mean. But we here, of course, think about it as a sort of political economic regime that arises uh, in response to a serious crisis of the system that happened in the 1970s. So neoliberalism, not quite as a cultural thing per se, although that's, that's an element of it, not just a body of ideas like the Chicago School, which Gabe goes to, you know, that's a little suspect itself, but not just Chicago School economics, but of course, like an entire regime of accumulation that arises based on some very fundamental principles. So while that is familiar terrain for all of us, we're going to be here with Gabe covering some awesome new ground because this book is kind of all about that. It's all about these shifts from like a former mode into the mode that we're in now. Very interesting stuff. That's right. So yeah, let's get into this a little bit. So in your book, you track the decline of manufacturing and the rise of the healthcare industry in the Rust Belt, specifically in Pittsburgh. And I would like to know, uh, why did you choose Pittsburgh and why did you choose the healthcare industry? Um, are there certain macroeconomic trends that you see particularly embodied there? Yeah, so Pittsburgh, uh, it exaggerates certain elements of what we could think of as this larger transition in ways that make, are, are useful because they make it possible to see what's going on, right? It kind of it brings out kind of key features uh, in grotesque ways, and then you can notice them, I and you can sort of generalize from there. So, uh, you know, Pittsburgh, for one thing, since the late 1800s, Pittsburgh has been a symbol of the Second Industrial Revolution, right? The age of uh, steel and rail. Um, social scientists have been going there since the beginning of the 20th century to, and observers and journalists and ultimately organizers and activists to understand and grapple with and deal with what kind of social transformation was wrought by the kind of high moment of industrial capitalism. It's a city made in the image of, of the second industrial revolution. Um, it's literally so on their football jerseys. Right. I mean, right. The, the football team is still the Steelers. The, the local beer is iron city. I right. mean, it goes on and on like this. Um, I mean, in fact, you may remember the song black and yellow. Um and uh, black and yellow refers to coal and iron. Oh, okay. Um, I mean, not necessarily, uh, you know, it, 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 there's a chain of secrets through which that meaning has been passed down from, you know, it's original, it's original, but it's symbolized to appearing in the song, but and on the, on the Steelers and so on. Um, so a real Although it's art. odd because iron is not yellow, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> it could have been gold or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe I have that wrong, but I don't think so. Um, so there's a real archetypal city then for understanding the 20th century. Yeah, it's a real, exactly. And, you know, to put it more concretely, uh, in 1950, which is more or less when the book starts, um, 47% of employment in Pittsburgh was in either manufacturing, uh, mining, construction, warehousing, trucking, or rail. So like blue collar, right? Uh, that's a much greater degree than any country's national labor market has ever been. So it exaggerates that. Steel was at the heart of that. Steel was by far the biggest subsection of that. And steel as an industry was already, um, it became mature in the interwar period and was already kind of senescent or beginning to become senescent by the post-war period. So it also stretches out 
this process of deindustrialization in a useful way so we can watch it really slowly and kind of understand what's what's going on with it. Um, as soon as the Korean War was over, basically, you could start to see the early signs of it. Then just the last part of this, um, healthcare, I mean, the transition from steel is a major industry to healthcare, it's very, very obvious and visible there. Uh, I mean, for one thing, the tallest building on the skyline is U.S. Steel Tower, mm. but the biggest tenant is the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Right. Uh, it's, I mean, their corporate headquarters. So they took USS off the top of the tower and put up UPMC on the top of the skyline there. Uh, so it's just like it makes it very clear what's going on. Yeah. I mean, you say right in the beginning of the book that one of the thing that's really one of the other things that's interesting about Pittsburgh is how visible the sort of dead industry of, of steel and, and mining is in terms of the symbology of the city and what people think it stands for versus how invisible the actual labor that's taking place there is. Right. So you have this very visible sort of steel sector that 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 uh, kind of has been passed down. And with Steel City, but yet we don't really talk much about healthcare workers, not just in, in Pittsburgh, but there's no there's no like larger narrative like there was to like the union steel worker uh, in this country, in Pittsburgh or elsewhere about healthcare workers. They seem to be invisible. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's quite surprising to people when I t- often when I tell them that healthcare is the largest sector of employment in the country. It's 14 percent of all jobs nationwide. It's more than that in places like Pittsburgh. And if you recite some of the kind of occupational issues that emerge out of the healthcare industry in an everyday way, understaffing, you know, occupational hazards like, uh, you know, I mean, nursing home workers, for example, even before COVID, that was a very dangerous job and it has a very high rate of occupational hazard, uh, mainly from lifting and moving bodies, uh, or also things like needle sticks. People just don't know about any of this in the way that people kind of once knew, right, about black lung, for example, or other kinds of just core features of industrial production. Right. And that has to do, and we can talk more about this, with uh, deep things, I think, about the kind of power and that some kinds of workers have enjoyed historically and others do not at the moment. All right. So, uh, yeah. So in the first half of your book, you show how the political economy of this so-called golden age of capitalism with all of the conflicts and contradictions embedded within it, um, how it laid the groundwork for this shift in class composition that would come later. So uh, can you take us through a little bit of this process and the, the building blocks there? And, yeah. and also too, can you highlight some of the contradictions of that period? Because I think one of the things we do in America even people on the left, even like Marxists do, is they, they valorize and hold up this golden age of American capitalism, this post-war consensus, as the sort of political vision that we want. But it's very clear in your book, and I want it to be clear to the listeners, the deep structural contradictions and inadequacies, really, that existed within that, that make the disintegration of this social order not accidental, but instead arising out of its, its own you know, inner conflicts. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I think the key thing to understand is that there was a period in the 1930s when the labor movement was kind of a broad movement of the working class in general in many ways. I mean, there was, you know, all the issues of bureaucracy and authoritarianism in the movement and this kind of thing. But there was a moment when in particular the CIO was leading the working class kind of as a whole. but as that became increasingly institutionalized over the late 30s and mid to, you know, through the war, uh, and then as it encountered the second Red Scare in the late 40s and early 50s, 
the industrial unions became increasingly parochial in their kind of political and ec- political uh, orientation and their economic function. So what that means is that they went from this kind of uh, you know transformative. Uh, having this kind of transformative quality at the head of the working social industrial unionism, basically. Yeah. Uh, to increasingly a kind of left-wing business union, relatively left-wing business unionism. Right. Um, they, they got a little depoliticized, shall we say more narrowly focused on the economic interests of its, uh, of their members. Right. Um, and you know, this was, you know, we could argue about whether they had an alternative or not. I mean, I think there are interesting questions that one could talk about there, but I think we can agree that this is what happened. Right. Um, and in particular, uh, one element of this that my book pays a lot of attention to is how when they failed to continue extending the kind of social democratic um, administrative program of the New Deal, in other words, it creating new form, new elements of state power in the welfare state, um, they instead retreated into constructing private welfare states for their members. Uh, in the late 40s and early 50s, the UAW, the steel workers, the miners all do this, right? They build, I mean, in the miners' case, they literally build themselves hospitals, but you know, the others negotiate their first um, healthcare plans and pensions and so forth. Famously, the Treaty of Detroit, you know, adds cost of living adjustments, which I think is funny because you put in the book that it it's like an internal privatized union monetary policy. Almost. Right. Well, I think that's a perfect example of the way in which the labor movement, uh, if you're in it, right, if you're in one of these uh, kind of protected areas inside this perimeter, you're kind of in a different political economy than the rest of the working class. So there's this structural division. Uh, emerges within the working class that organized labor allows to emerge or is, uh, that begins to separate industrial workers and their legal dependents, their families from the rest of the working class. And this is this enormous, ultimately fatal structural fault line in the New Deal order as a whole, which manifests in a number of different ways. Um, it manifests very importantly in inflation. Um, as you have some segments of the working class that are able to increase their wages and steal faster generally than productivity is increasing. Um, and, you know, that kind of gives you this mon- this monetary bubble that you were just describing, Sean, um, that of course drives up the price of steel. Steel is an oligopoly, so they can pass those, those cost increases onto their customers, in particular, who buys steel, auto companies and construction companies. Um, And, you know, that then in turn radiates out across the rest of the economy. So you have this kind of structural problem that for the organized industrial working class to continue to make gains, uh, it gets increasingly pitted against those who surround it. And um, moreover, this creates tremendous pressure on their own employers to try to hold down their labor costs as much as they can. So the first chapter of the book is about the 1950s in the steel industry, which are worth paying attention to, among other reasons, because it culminates in the biggest strike in U.S. history in terms of person hours. That's the 1959 steel strike. The steel industry basically tried to um, roll back work rules in the union contract. There was a master contract covered the whole industry. And they tried to roll back work rules that would allow them to reduce uh, employment levels and, you know, speed workers up in a variety of ways. Um, 
as a way of dealing with their rising labor costs relative to productivity. The, the union successfully resists this um, and eventually drags Eisenhower into settling the strike on their side, which is something that happens again and again to the 50s and 60s, is that big industrial unions are able to force even a Republican president mm-hmm. to decide labor disputes on their side because they don't want to deal with what it will do to the economy as a whole to have a half a million steel workers on strike. Right. Um, and a very similar dynamic, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, goes on in, in the UK until the 1980s, you know, until the N- National Union of Miners is finally defeated by Thatcher, they were able to do the same thing. So working class power builds this sort of bulwark, you know, against against all parties of the state until it doesn't anymore. Right. Um, but, you know, kind of the irony in this case is that because social citizenship, economic security is being routed out, pumped out into the working class through these industrial jobs, um, it creates a whole kind of cascade of subordinate positions of people who also in, in the working class have to kind of position themselves in relation to the economic and social citizenship and power of industrial workers. So famously, their wives, right? And this is what the second chapter of the book is about. Uh, their wives have to, you know, reproduce their labor power and reproduce the family. And there's a whole set of dynamics that kind of go on in that relationship that are very complicated and important. And then, you know, another thing that the book really spends a lot of time on is, uh, okay, if you think about health insurance, what does health insurance actually buy, right? It's a denominated kind of currency that allows you to buy a service. And that service is a pretty labor intensive service. So it's really a coupon for someone someone else to take care of you, basically. Um, and that someone else is overwhelmingly likely then as now to be a woman, uh, in Pittsburgh, likely a black woman, in a hospital or a nursing home, in industries that were not part of the New Deal state. So healthcare wasn't covered by labor law until the 1970s. It wasn't covered by the minimum wage until the late 1960s. It was this um, peripheral zone. And the security of the insiders, right, depends on having access to these kind of various tiers of outsiders, the wives to keep the homes going, and then the, you know, nurses, nurses aides, right, who kind of work the hospitals and service the insiders. So the structural division within the working class is really important. Yeah. Um, you know what? I'm going to go a little bit off script. Uh, Please do. Let's go wild. Let's wild out on this. I mean, I, th- I think it's really important to uh, recognize the ways that this, you know, allegedly stable and just society ran on the unwaged or underpaid labor of people who were excluded from it, uh, particularly, you know, women and people of color. Uh, because, you know, there's a lot of people now who are like, we need to do the new deal again, only make it not racist and sexist. But like, I feel like those things were sort of part of it because they saved a lot of money for capital, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in a world where like the late forties somehow didn't happen. Right. And labor continued advancing then, you know, maybe you would have had a kind of genuinely universalist social democracy that didn't subdivide the working class in this set of ways. And certainly, you know, on the left wing of the labor movement, on the left wing, even of the New Deal state, were, you know, feminists and socialists and communists and real, you know, anti-racist figures of different kinds. 
whose visions are all kind of crushed in the late 40s and 50s as the regime calcifies into its post-war shape, right? Any kind of social democratic agenda is going to have moments of advance and moments of calcification, right? Where the opposition, as it did in the late 40s, reorganizes itself, reasserts itself, and forces you to accept some set of compromises. And, you know, it's not like FDR sat around scheming or even Robert Wagner sat around scheming how to leave women out or leave black people out, right? That wasn't how, what happened. What happened was in the process of political conflict that resulted. And that, that I think is a deep problem for this kind of social democratic reformist agenda. Yeah, word. So, okay. You also talk a, a lot about how the kind of legitimization and incorporation of organized labor into the state as this, you know, kind of official player with a seat at the table, it was a double-edged sword for workers. Um, can you elaborate on this a bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's worth, even in this kind of sort of denunciation of the New Deal state that I'm doing, you know, it's worth acknowledging that by 1960, steel workers are making the average of like, I think about $27 an hour today. Uh, tremendous transformation, you know, um, and that came from that kind of incorporation uh, in combination with the kind of collective power that they wielded. But um, it depended on the labor movement's ascent to its own de-radicalization. And that wasn't just like, oh, too bad there weren't communists anymore. That would have been like rad. <laughs> it's that uh, it had to retreat from its more ambitious agenda, both in terms of things like we are talking about before, in terms of health insurance, you know, national health insurance and this kind of thing. But also, um, you know, the labor movement had to become part of the Democratic Party as opposed to a kind of semi-independent political force as it had been in the in earlier years. Uh, it had to become a kind of component of the Democratic Party coalition and concern itself with, like, helping Democrats win. And it had within that, it had to, um, again, accept a whole set of internal hierarchies within the working class. In steel, that manifests really importantly as um, racial hierarchy based on how seniority works inside factories. So that basically some parts of steel mills are the black shops. And those are the most dangerous ones and the, you know, the hottest and most toxic ones. And black workers are last hired and the first fired. And so all of that kind of comes with this set of compromises. Yeah. So, okay. Moving right along to the crisis of profitability. Um, you're fairly even handed in the book as to whether this end to stable formal employment or, you know, relatively stable formal employment, because uh, it wasn't necessarily all it's cracked up to be, uh, whether it's due to this worldwide crisis of growth and profitability uh, mediated in various ways by automation, but, you know, it's complicated <laughs> or this more kind of open ended dynamic you described that's contingent on uh, traditional kinds of collective political intervention or I guess non intervention is the case, maybe um, the labor movement laws, et cetera. Um, which explanation do you find more convincing? So I think there's two issues here. One is what causes deindustrialization. And on that, 
I actually, you know, I, I, I tend to be kind of convinced by the Brenner Beninav kind of account. I, I imagine you've talked about on this show. Oh, yeah, we are we have pretty indeed. much Brennan, Brennerites yeah. ourselves. Yes. Uh, but you know, the book isn't actually able to answer that. That's not the kind of research that it is. So that's like my own, I kind of buy that, but the book, I, I wrote it deliberately to be compatible with the kind of competing accounts. Cause I think it doesn't, for the story I'm trying to tell, it actually kind of doesn't matter why steel jobs go away. Um, so long as you accept the empirical fact that they're declining steadily even before 1980. Um, however, the question that you're raising, Jamie, um, is about a kind of longer, it's a longer term question, right? Which is, uh, okay, steel jobs go away uh, or industrial jobs more broadly do. And they're replaced by service industry jobs, which as Aaron Benenav says, are generally less amenable to productivity increase. Right. Um, and that creates a political problem because I think in particular, there's a world among mainly kind of left liberals, but you can find socialists and maybe even you know, further left folks who will argue versions of this that we could sort of do again, some better version of the kind of political cycle of the work classical workers movement, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, win reforms and, and reform unions and make service work good the way that industrial work in the mid 20th century was sort of good. Um, and I'm all for those struggles. I mean, I, you know, phone bank for the pro act too. Um, but I do it with a certain skepticism in the longer term. I think there are reasons to do it in the shorter term, but in the longer term, uh, I think that it's very difficult to imagine the kind of social compromise that existed in 1950 or 1960 existing now balanced on service industries that are defined by zero sum conflict, economic conflict, because they don't have, if an industry doesn't have productivity increase in a steady way, then it's much harder for capital and labor to kind of agree on a social reformist type program. There isn't isn't like a, a basket where some proportion that the capitalist class is getting can be fought for and gotten by workers, some percentage of that, that increase uh, that can be reasonably debated. <laughs> and at the end of the day, like both sides can come away with something. Instead, it's exactly as you said, it becomes a zero-sum game. If you're going to win these concessions in low-wage, low-productivity, uh, low-automation environments, it's going to go directly, come directly out of capital's profits. And so the kind of deal that you can make in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, right, is... I mean, it's possible to do it, but you're going to have a head-on assault on profits, which capital is going to fight tooth and nail. And if you expect some sort of compromise to come out of that, uh, I don't know, good luck. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this when we had Aaron Beninov on the show, right? I think it's really important to understand that the reason why the labor movement was able to claw back these uh, good provisions for themselves, you know, in the form of better wages, in the form of social spending was because productivity growth was so high, right? You had constant increases in productivity and that's what, and in output, I should say, you know, the amount of the shit that you're selling to people. So that's why this was such a, for a time, such sort of a prosperous and dynamic system. Whereas if you think about, you know, direct human services, like caring for somebody, cooking for somebody, whatever, whatever. There's only so much productivity yeah. growth that you can squeeze out of that exactly. via automation. 
Exactly. I think that's really important for folks to understand. Well, I think that another good resource to go to, and I'm going to do a uh, really uh, corny self-plug here, is episode 130 of the Antifada with <laughs> Jason Smith, Line Goes Mad, in which we talked exactly about this. And we talked about the current service economy and why it's so difficult for these transformations to take place, given not just the class composition, but of course, also the actual concrete labor itself. But uh, moving right along here, um, we all know with the 1970s, we have a crisis of profitability. You know, we're going to be, um, I don't know, uh, ambivalent about how that was caused. But we know there's a crisis of profitability and we see an acceleration of deindustrialization that had already been happening across the, the Rust Belt. It starts to accelerate, uh, which you link directly to a rise in demand for healthcare. So what's the connection here? Why did care work begin to take a larger role in the economy as industrial employment shrank? Yeah, well, I think to get this, you actually have to think about demography, but you have to think about demography and the shape of the population as something that's internal to capital, right? The capital actually makes the population in its own image or affects the shape of the population as it grows and shrinks and contracts and does whatever it does. So um, that's so very Marxist of, all, of you. Thank you. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, this is a, this is a debate that Marx had. If you read capital, you see Marx address Malthus at various points um, and say like, actually, yeah, population does matter, but it, Malthus, uh, you know, his kind of warnings of the kind of population bomb, you know, that's not what he called it, but that was what he thought. Um, he has, he has the causality backward. Um well, I was just called a, a little uh, Malthus's little bitch on Twitter the other day. So I hear you, man. I'm still getting that from weird, like, Italian neoliberals. I'm not going to ask you more about that. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to. People can look it up. <laughs> um, but um, so the in the kind of moment of maximum industrial investment and employment around the time of the Korean War in a place like Pittsburgh, um, when the workforce in steel was at its largest, you know, there was, I mean, I'll put it directly, right. There was a big cohort of young guys who got hired into steel mills between 1940 and 1955 to make steel for the war efforts, right. In the, in the wars of those years. Um, but then we're never fully replaced, right. Because the workforce shrinks steadily over time after that. Um, what that means is that that workforce gets older, right. On the average steel worker is older in 1980 than in 1950 significantly. And moreover, that affects in a bigger way the whole population around the steel industry because young men look at the factories where their dads work and they recognize it's going to be harder for them to get a job there. If the industry as a whole is shrinking and it's organized around seniority, right, then uh, and opportunity for entry for younger people is going to shrink. Um, and the same effect will be exaggerated for African-Americans. Um, so that causes out-migration. Uh, by the time you get to 1980 and the Volcker shock and what, you know, what we think of as a transition to neoliberalism, um, Pittsburgh has become one of the oldest metropolitan areas in the country among you know, big urban areas. And a similar process is underway in all industrial cities. It's just that steel has a kind of particularly exaggerated version of this because steel was already mature very early in the 20th century. Um, so you have this aging population you have a population that's, whose access to the economic security of, of the kind of New Deal type, right, these kind of unionized industrial jobs, is increasingly uneven as employment is shrinking. So the people who still have these good jobs and the jobs have gotten better in some ways over time, but fewer people have them. 
So elements of the population are also getting pushed into poverty. Uh, and as the population gets older and as it gets sicker, it gets poorer simultaneously. Sorry, as it gets older and as it gets poorer, it also gets sicker in, ag- in aggregate. Um, so these three things together, older, poorer, sicker, uh, you know, they generate social need of different kinds, not all of which would necessarily be demand for healthcare, but the public private healthcare system that exists, the really good insurance that steel workers have that covers their families, um, it basically encourages people if they need social assistance, a really good way to get it is if they can, if it, that's so if that need can manifest as a healthcare need, mm. um, that's a, a way to claim a large amount of social assistance. And so a lot of this economic dislocation that's happening gradually eating into this population is manifesting as rising demand for healthcare that they're able to, uh, get that demand can get met because they have this like killer insurance. Only like a year ago, we were in the midst of a national conversation about Medicare for all and people, you know, wide eyed idealists out there and people who had looked at the particular type of healthcare system and health insurance system we have in this country said, this sucks. This is untenable. We need to replace this. We need to get rid of it. And maybe they expected some pushback, but the level of pushback against Medicare for all from all fronts, not just the media, but from politicians was incredible. And it's because unlike a lot of the other advanced capitalist countries, because we have this weird public private government subsidies, government consumes, it doesn't produce health care and, and, and care, for example, like it, it's eaten up such a large chunk of the economy that when you talk about eliminating, you know, the, like vast swaths of that you're talking about a legitimate real hit to like millions of jobs and also a ton a ton a ton of profits more importantly and of mm-hmm. course patronage schemes that that uh you know uh politicians have along the way but also it seems like this weird public private partnership uh insulated healthcare in some ways um from cuts that were affecting right. the other parts of the social safety net much more which is what i wanted to ask you about as well like why did public expenditures on healthcare continue to increase even in the 1980s um as other social subsidies like food stamps drastically declined like what was it about this weird public private partnership that developed that made this made this happen this way yeah this blew my mind when i figured this out um so i mean first of all as we're saying even before things before shit really hits the fan in in the 1980s um in 1979 pittsburgh's what they call health uh hospital utilization uh is in the year 1979 1.6 inpatient days per capita so what that means is if everyone in the region used the same amount of hospital, went to the hospital the same amount. Everyone did an exactly equal amount. Everyone in the region would have spent 1.6 days in the hospital that year, which is nuts, right? It's like extreme, it's triple yeah. our national rate today. Yeah, um, I've actually never spent a single day in the hospital. <laughs> I've, yeah. I, I spent a, a couple nights and it was for like maybe the most dangerous uh, injury I've ever had in my life. And I haven't spent a night since. Right. Now, of course, everyone was not, in fact, spending Knock the same on amount. Wood. Yeah. <laughs> I did a compound fracture of my left uh, forearm skateboarding uh, back in like 1997. And I still have the scars to prove it. A little fun fact about me. <laughs> I've <laughs> never spent a night in the hospital. They, they um, had to cut me open and put plates and pins and everything like that. But, uh, you know, again, that this is out of all of my years. That was the only case. It's very that's a very incredible statistic. 
So if, yeah. you, if you'd done that in 1979 and you had had the steelworker insurance plan, you would have been there maybe like 10 days. Hey, hey, um, so bad. Hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened was people used it like a kind of uh, like medium term care is a term that I sometimes use for it. Right. It was like just it didn't move as fast as it does now. And that led people to use it to kind of deal with like social situations that they were they or their family were dealing with. So, you know. Um, the daughter has to get a job for the first time because her husband has gotten laid off from the steel mill because it's the late 70s. And, you know, the dad has some chronic shit and, the, and she used to take care of him, but she can't right now. And so they can kind of just like check him into the hospital for a week or two and deal with it later. Right. Um, and they just, exactly they what they said was going to happen if we had socialized health care. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't think we, we should certainly not like blame people for doing that. They were using the resources they had. Right. But it also tells you that this is the one was the one form of like social access. It was really kind of plentiful. Um, and so, like I said before, economic distress kind of got turned in various ways into healthcare demand. Um, then 1979 happens, the Fed deflates the dollar. Um, I mean, for, for Pittsburgh, it's like a great depression. I mean, unemployment rises by the early eighties to 17%. Um, and you know, this is the cycle when the steel mills all finally close or most of them finally close. Um, and, you know, this environment, you would think, would drive down use of the healthcare system, right? Because people are losing their insurance. But in fact, it does the opposite um, for a few reasons. So one, there's a kind of just a financial reason, which is that uh the rising value of the dollar causes increased demand. Hospitals expand through municipal through borrowing on municipal bond markets. Um, so hospitals all see this as an opportunity to grow. Um, and you know, even as capital is draining out of the region really rapidly, capital investment in hospitals triples from 1979 to 1980. It's like insane. And then it rises again really dramatically the year after that. Because so of, they're growing. Yeah. And then just to add it, because of the particular way that hospitals operate in this country too, that comes out of this previous era where it's not a government, well, it's not, VA is a government hospital, but largely they're nonprofits. You know, they're, they're these like strange little carve out in the economy where there's a ton of money going into it, a ton of people getting paid. There's tons of state expenditure with Medicare and Medicaid going into them. But they're like, they're insulated somewhat. Yeah, right. In fact, they're counter-cyclical. This was the thing that really got me. Right. So uh, they can borrow on these tax-protected markets, right, of the of municipal bonds. They can pass through their capital costs, so their interest payments, basically, to Medicare. So Medicare will cover that for them. Um, they have a guaranteed revenue stream for Medicare and Medicaid, not even to mention the kind of huge local anomaly of an industrial workers collectively bargain plan, which even for laid off workers will persist for some months or years. And for the huge number of retirees right. will persist in many cases for decades. Um, so the economic depression that that kind of crushes Pittsburgh in the early eighties is great for the healthcare industry. And it just, it just feeds on it. Man, that's crazy to think something called a nonprofit system could be so tied into the logic of the market. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I um, mean, and think about non-governmental organizations and how many NGOs do cop work. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very similar. <laughs> we, we have a funny, we have funny naming conventions here in the United States. Yeah, well, you hear but the average person here is nonprofit and they're like, oh, that's oh, yeah. good. There's no profits. 
Well, you know, it's interesting, I think, because you see this, I think, in a lot of elements of American like governance in, in the 70s and 80s uh, that these organizations, I mean, a community hospital in a steel town uh, that was a nonprofit in the 50s and 60s. I mean, there were like corporate goons who ran them to some degree, but they were not actually trying to make money. Uh, they were trying to, you know, stay above water. And that involved them doing gross things sometimes, but they weren't trying to accumulate for someone else. Um, and in the 70s, as the, the demand for their services grows so much and their access to the subset, both guaranteed income stream from Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, Blue Cross and subsidized debt uh, is available to them. You can see the way that this social service starts to get finance like woven into its delivery. Right, right. And in fact, their ability to make good on everyone's needs and everyone's demands on them starts to rest on their ability to borrow Um and, you know, I read all kinds of documents where hospital administrators in the 70s are saying, look, if you want us to deliver 1.6 inpatient days per capita, uh, we're going to, like, borrow some money and grow. Uh, and that seems to be what you all want. So let's do it. Sure. And it's, of course, and at the end of the day, it comes down to how paltry our, quote unquote, social democratic state was to begin with, because all of these social problems are being foisted onto this healthcare system, as you mentioned. Right. And then it gets kind of carved. It gets taken over from inside by capital, basically. It really reminds me, too, of conversations we've had about the prison industrial complex and the way all social ills are sort of foisted onto that as well, uh, especially dealing with surplus populations. You know, people who have been laid off from the traditional labor market. Uh sort of in a similar way. I hate to be like all Foucauldian, like everything is prison. But uh I think I think a lot about the prison industrial complex these days, and it, the parallels seem really, uh, really obvious. NGOs are cops. Hospitals are prison. Uh, down with all nurses. Smash the healthcare state. That's what we say here on this podcast. <laughs> uh, I mean, I actually think there's like I, I make this comparison in the book explicitly, and I think it's you know it troubles people, and sometimes you get pushback for it because like we think that there should be a healthcare system, unlike a prison system, right? Um, but you're totally right, Jamie, right, that it grows to manage both politically and economically and socially to manage a displaced surplus population, to bring to bear available state power and capital to do that. Um, and if you want to see the overlap really clearly, think about nursing homes, right, which uh, are kind of quasi carceral institutions, genuinely. And, you know, an, an abusive, like an abusive nursing home, which happens in the story of the book and there are, you know there is understaffing and underfunding in nursing homes and the way that that manifests as abuse is you know nursing assistants who have too much to do and can't get it done and if they get really if they start to get really like fried by that uh they have to immobilize patients right that's like that is that is how abuse happens in nursing homes is workers there just aren't enough of them and they get overwhelmed and they decide i need to sedate people or i need to basically restrain people physically so then, like, you see the healthcare system becoming a prison system. It's absolutely tragic, too, because so much of this, too, is through the 20th century, uh, the family changes, right? So you go from, like, extended networks of, like, family bonds and older people don't live that long. And to the extent that they would live after their working years or into the retirement, they would have help from their families. But then this entire uh, industry of elder care comes in as like this commodified arrangement that used to take place within the household, used to be socially reproduced within the household, now becoming big business, you know, and now becoming not, not just a prison, but also like a good way to, you know, make a buck. 
because a lot of women had to get jobs as well during this time period. And we, we didn't have like this sole breadwinner ideal anymore. Yeah. So, I mean, again, I think, you know, there's danger in being nostalgic about the kind of regime of social reproduction in the 50s and 60s, the same as we don't want to be nostalgic about industrial production, um, right? Because women, I mean, there's just tons of stories of just, you know, girls and women who just spend all day taking care of older, you know, older relatives and this kind of thing. And I mean, I wouldn't want to do that. And if, you know, I, I feel like they didn't have a lot of choice about that matter. Um, that was just part of their role in society. Um but, you know, as with so many of these processes, the way that, that that social democratic kind of compromise then gets broken open is by absorption into a kind of commodified regime, as you're saying, Sean, um, which basically shifts the problem using public money and public resources, shifts the problem onto poor women, right? Like, okay, we have this huge growing, growing problem, elders who need care, families that don't have the resources to do it themselves anymore because their own uh, women members have gone out to work for the first time to make, make up for lost steelworker wages. Uh, so like, let's just make workers do this who have no other option in the labor market. And that, that becomes the answer. Back to this situation. All right. You talk, we talked a little bit before about why wages in the healthcare sector are so shitty. And we got ourselves a little trilemma in tri-lemma. the deindustrializing capitalist democracy like is tri- the world. trialectic is this it's like- <laughs> uh yeah i will re- i will see your dialectic and raise you a trialectic so what's what's the fucking what's the deal what's this trilemma at play that you talk about in the book can you explain that a little bit yeah so the tri- a trilemma is where there's uh three options and you can have two any two of them um so in this case you know going back to this idea that the transition from industrial work to service work imposes these zero sum choices um, on employment relationships, right? Or these zero sum conflicts on employment relationships that then gives state managers, the people who are in control of, you know, regulating labor markets and deindustrializing, you know, liberal states, um, a set of choices that they have to select between. So there are three things that they want in this formulation. They want High wages, ideally. I mean, they would rather their, you know, rather wages be high than low. Sure. Um, Income tax money for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And growth. Right. Uh, But they would also like low unemployment. um, And those things are potentially at odds with each other in private sector, in a private sector labor market um, without productivity increase. Right. And then they would also like to uh, not grow the state's fiscal footprint. They would like to not increase taxes or borrow money and, you know, increase how much of the economy the state is directing um, because capital doesn't like that. Um, so they could do two, any, any two of these three. So for example, uh, like the French have basically done, they can regulate the private sector labor market heavily, right? Through things like unemployment insurance, union power, union rights and union power. And that'll give you high wages, relatively, but it will also give you high unemployment. And France has this kind of notoriously sticky unemployment problem. Especially right? for young people. Yeah. Um, and this was what Germany did too until the early 2000s. Um, and it was the kind of collapse of this regime that has destroyed the Social Democratic Party in Germany. You can go the U.S. route, which is deregulate the labor market, have like virtually no social safety, that have no unions, and that will give you low unemployment, right? This country has generally lower unemployment than a lot of European welfare states, but it will also give you shit wages, 
or you can go the Scandinavian route, which is to take the public, uh, to take the service sector into the public sector, or more of it anyway, into the public sector. And that will allow you to then make service jobs, highway jobs, but it means that you have to finance that somehow. Uh, so that's the, that's the trilemma. And, uh, you know, this, this is a kind of literature, uh, uh, kind of idea that emerges out of political science in the 1990s and 2000s. Um, as, you know, all these countries were debating their equivalents of what was welfare reform in this country, right? All these countries were doing things like that then or trying to figure out if they should. Um, one thing that the book is saying is we actually made our choice decades ago, right? When we decided we were going, we didn't mean to, we didn't realize this is what we were doing, but when we decided we were going to build this whole unprotected, insecure zone for the service economy outside of the industrial economy to service the industrial economy as a kind of adjunct to it. Um, in that moment, back in the 50s, we were deciding that we were going to go the low-wage route. Uh, and so the origins of shitty service work, they lie inside the contradictions of the New Deal state itself, as opposed to something that kind of came after it in the 80s and 90s. Or simply a neoliberal attack. Right. Which is, is in part other words, of it, but... Yeah, I mean, in other words, neoliberalism, the material for it was already present in the New Deal state. Jamie, that's and, more... Too bad you're not talking with Sam Cedar much these days. That's more ammunition uh, for your constant debates about whether neoliberalism was a choice. Oh, my God. <laughs> fucking kill me. No, but I, you did go on his show, Gabe, and... I'm sad that you didn't get that far into the book because, you know, something he probably would have asked you is, well, you know, I what about I believe in Keynesian economics and I believe in MMT and I think running a large public deficit isn't necessarily a bad thing. Therefore, doesn't that trilemma like not really exist? I see your trilemma and I raise you funny money. We're just going to funny money our way out of the dilemma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, maybe we're in a situation where like the historic, you know, I think the the price of capital is virtually has become zero. Right. Like and that's an interesting situation and maybe offers left wing solutions to the trilemma that we haven't thought through or haven't ha haven't had access to. But I think that um, any resolution to that, any ex exploration we may want to do of a left exit out of it. Uh, has to occur through like tremendous struggle in the service economy, right? In the service industries, um, because it involves extinguishing their owners, right? I mean, that's like, that's what we're talking about here, right? It's like, if you want to resolve the trilemma on the left, you're talking about wiping out whole sectors of capital. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I guess we kind of went over um, the reasons why just sort of unionizing the sector and struggling for better wages is more of a short-term solution to this problem than a long-term solution. Um, I was also struck reading your book, how uh, a hospital system like UPMC could claim it has no employees yeah. when it is the largest employer in the area. And it really reminds me of like Uber or Amazon, mm -hmm. you know, like it seems like a, a microcosm in some ways of where the rest of the economy has gone since then. Yeah. It's like, it seems like it's, it's like a generalization of, of the, the sort of like exclusionary economic factor, like exclusionary spheres that existed in the 1950s. It's coming from more and more industries and more and more workers. It seems. 
Yeah, you know, I, so I start the book with that anecdote of UPMC, which is the largest private employer in Pennsylvania. It employs about 100,000 people. Um, I mean, Amazon employs only a half a million people. So this is one hospital chain, right? That's a fifth, a fifth of the employment footprint of Amazon. And they claimed before uh, the NLRB that they don't have any employees. And what they were saying, you know, the details of what they were saying was that um, we're just a parent company. And, you know, actually your, your dispute is with the various uh, subsidiary, you know, hospital subsidiaries that sure. we have. Uh, there's no one company. And this is something very familiar in the kind of reformist labor world and labor law and this kind of thing, right? We have these campaigns against Uber and, you know, against private universities and different kinds of agents, entities that claim not to be employers in one way or another of their workers so as not to be subject to one dimension or another of labor market regulation. And, um, you know, I'm all for, like, re-regulating them as much as we can. I mean, I think that that makes sense as an immediate object of struggle. But the point I was trying to make in beginning the book with that was to say that this problem doesn't originate with the gig economy, right? That in one way or another, these workers have been not part of the kind of normative or standard employment relationship at any point. Um, And so what we think of as the gig economy is actually kind of like an effect of that deeper set of social relations that again, were established under the new deal. Um, And so while it may make sense, I think it does make sense to orient ourselves in terms of immediate struggle around, uh, you know, trying to recompose some working class power through confrontation over kind of legal and labor market institutional issues like unionization and like employee status. Um, It can't answer the final question because the final question in regard to this industry, not in regard to capitalism, um, (laughs) is... It has to do with the nature, the basic kind of existential nature of the industry. Because the real issue, the real issue is not that UPMC is subcontracting employment to its subsidiaries. The real issue is that UPMC is a subcontractor for the public, Mm. right? That actually healthcare is a social service. It's part of what makes society. It's been, healthcare institutions have been constructed through political and social regulation and subsidy in a whole bunch of different ways um, as a result of political struggle, you, you know, sort of democratic class struggle, that has created the kind of material out of which UPMC was made. But the provision of that service got subcontracted to these private entities that we call hospitals and nursing homes. Um, and I think it's really useful to think about how the healthcare, the whole healthcare industry in these terms, because, you know, I mean, anyone knows from any job you've ever had, right? Why does something get subcontracted to hold down labor costs? That's what subcontracting is for. Uh, and that is, I mean, that is literally, it's why the healthcare industry exists. And so if you want to deal with like the fundamental problem of why this largest sector of our labor market is such a shitty sector to work in, you have to destroy it i'm I'm here for that (laughs) word so okay more on the struggle um you talk about how care workers have maximized their own power quote when they have articulated the community of interest they share with their patients and communities who are simultaneously exploited and secured by the industry 
Um, this made me think about the recent wave of teacher strikes, which were very much like a socially conscious uh, community movement beyond just the interests of the teachers, the workers. Um, what are some examples of this happening in the healthcare sector? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, it's been much harder to do in the healthcare sector. So we've seen a lot of um, sort of partial or fragmentary versions of this, um, you know, in struggles around uh, hospital access and keeping hospitals open, for example. Um, I mean, here in Chicago, the University of Chicago Hospital, my own employer, you know, operates it. They wanted to close their trauma center. Uh, it was the only trauma center on the south side of Chicago. So when people got you know, shot. There's a lot of people get shot on the south side of Chicago. Um, if there was no trauma center here, they would have to go like 30 minutes further. Um, so that's real lives in the balance. And that's real lives in the balance. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, obviously there was a kind of principle of like medical apartheid that was getting hashed out there. Um, so there was a big struggle, a big movement uh, that involved, you know, students on campus and also workers at the hospital. There's unionized nurses there. Um, and kind of community and neighborhood activists on the South side, uh, you know, over a period of years, basically succeeded in leveraging the university to reopen its trauma center. And I think there are stories like this from across the country, some successes, some failures that you can point to. Yeah, they were but doing I think uh, SUNY downstate uh, in Brooklyn, like four or five years ago and it failed, but there was a big fight to try to keep the state university of New York hospital in, in the borough. Yeah. Um, I tell a story in the book from the late seventies. So it's a kind of different situation, but of a really abusive nurse, public nursing home owned by the County, uh, 2,200 beds, which, I mean, just so you have some sense of scale, like your average general hospital is like 300 beds. Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> livestock basically. Yeah. It was like a huge, you know, warehouse. Uh, and you know, the County was losing tax revenue because of deindustrialization was cutting funding that was leading to staffing falling while patient demand rose, same dynamic I was talking about earlier, uh, places overcrowded, understaffed, and became a kind of concentration camp for the elderly. I mean, they were being, uh, you know, physically restrained all day, sort of some were being basically tortured. Um, and it was revealed, uh, a kind of group of activists revealed what was going on there. And then it led to this big struggle uh, because the county immediately was like, well, we'll just privatize it. Like, no problem. Let's just get this thing off our hands. Um, and, you know, this formation that had been organized of, you know, there was some kind of union involvement from the workers there and some number of elder rights activists and kind of like progressive Catholic priests and people like this um, had organized this coalition that fought a five year struggle to say, no, actually keep it public, but just like you have to turn it into a small, you know, smaller institute, like break it up into smaller institutions and reform it in various ways. And they won, actually. But it's an instructive example, and it's related, Jamie, to your example of public education. The, the really important thing being that it was a public institution, right? And so it was directly amenable to public pressure or somewhat amenable to public pressure. Um, when you have a public institution, workers and clients, whether they're patients or students or whatever the kind of institution, they don't encounter each other directly as antagonists, right? Because the relationship between them is negotiated through taxation uh, and public policy, you know, public budgets. Whereas when an institution has been privatized, then there is a market price that is mediating between workers and their clients. Uh, this is why they want to privatize public schools, right? In the way that they have 
done somewhat with higher education and the way the healthcare system mainly is. And it makes it much, much harder to politicize um, the conditions of care that can potentially unite workers and patients and that, you know, are the grounds on which they share interests. So that's one important difference of the education system. The other is occupational hierarchy. Uh, I, I mean, in a school, like most of the people who work in a school are the teachers. There's other people there, you know, there's custodians, uh, there's food service, there's a nurse, there's a social worker, but the teachers are like the main things. A hospital is way more stratified and that also makes it harder. But I think it's still basically the principle to think about. You know, maybe I'm quite jaundiced. I probably am quite jaundiced and I'm really very cynical. And I've been, I felt that way about America since the golden age of the 1990s, just looking at uh, like the cheap indignities of American life, you know, not just the, the low wages and the shitty conditions and just the, the fundamental disrespect that people deal with day and have with no, with no help. You know, n- nothing there to help them on the horizon. You do this until you're, what, 70, 75 years old. You maybe collect a little Social Security. And then you spend your last, what, 10 years or so being treated like human livestock in one of these fucking places, in one of these nursing homes. Just the sheer indignity of it, it's just, it's, it's appalling to me. And I don't get mad a lot, but it's getting me actually pretty heated right now. And I think to myself, why aren't more Americans angry? But it turns out they are. They're just not exactly sure what it is to be angry at. They're angry at everything. If you look at something like kind of the apotheosis of this, this, this care, this shift towards care, the op- opioid epidemic of the late 1990s and late 90s and into the 2000s and into the, the last decade was just a, a, a stunning tale of corruption and the destruction of human life and the offloading of all of these social problems that create created by these economic problems onto into a predatory drug dealing enterprise, basically subsidized uh, by the state and made capital billions upon billions of dollars. It's, I think people are mad, but you need, I think we we need to ground this in in work like your book because it all seems very free floating in America, how just absolutely horrific and horrendous uh, life can be in this country for so many people. That's me editorializing. No, I mean, it's well said. I really agree. I think it gets to the key point, which is that, um, our social institutions that we've constructed in some degree for the purpose of social protection since the 30s and 40s, because they exist in all of these strange balances with capital. Um, they're imbricated with capital or it's, you know, they're administered privately or different things. Um, they, their effect is to privatize. All, they're constantly working to privatize the kinds of social problems that we're actually experiencing collectively. Right. right? Uh, they privatize it onto the family. They privatize it onto, uh, you know, private for-profit administration, they depoliticize it systematically. Um, and then it re-manifests in the form of like what we think of as formal politics in like these weird conversations about like healthcare prices are rising too fast. Right, right, that's right, weird, right. Why is that? Yeah. Like single issue sort of things that pop up and they, and they become a story for a little while. Like the Sackler family and the opiates thing, well, it was like around for a little while, but of course nobody made the connection to them and like the larger sort of structural historical processes that you're talking about. That's not what our media is for. That's not what our politicians are for. I mean, not to mention nobody's asking why people need so much healthcare in the first place. Yeah. Because, you know, if we had more investment in a real social safety net, you know, we wouldn't see as many health problems as we do. But, you know, both both parties, really, but I guess the Democrats are the ones who are talking about it more. Uh, They like to pretend that health is this isolated thing that can be walled off and just talk about costs or whatever. 
Yeah, but I think that this is this is a good opportunity for me to try to make the optimistic yes. take from my book. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, there's a kind of uh, Marxists sometimes talk about the grand dialectic in Marxism, right, which is the growing contradiction over time between the socialization of labor and the private ownership of capital, uh, you know, the private ownership of capital. Sure. Um, and, you know, I think that there uh are you telling me the value forms breaking down, dude? I'm here for that too. <laughs> yeah, I tell you the value form is breaking down, like genuinely. Cool. And I think you know there's, there's anxiety in some parts of the Marxist world that the grand dialectic is turned off, right? Mm. Um, and you can find this, you can find people suggesting this going all the way back to the '90s or '80s. Um, I think the book is trying to. I mean, the book is trying to make an argument actually for showing how that basic contradiction continues to operate, right? That the transfer of labor. And the transfer of consumer demand both into the care industries right, is a form of the collect of the kind of increasing socialization of labor that Marx is talking about. Right. It's a form of growing interdependency right. among us. But it's happening contradictorily through private ownership. And that is producing all of these like really fucked up symptoms of different, you know, I mean literal symptoms, as well as uh, kind of metaphorical ones. Uh, and is kind of creating a dynamic where uh, what could in principle be a positive or even kind of utopian transformation, right? Which is our transition into being a society where what we do with our human capacities is take care of the vulnerable and sick and old among us. I mean, that's a society I want to live in, you know? Uh, If you just describe that to me without telling me anything about uh, uh, anything else about it, it's creating a situation where we are doing that. We are becoming that society, but we're backing into it in this really dark and perverse way. Uh, So the book is arguing that that contradiction is intensifying and creating the social and political material to actually become a sort of properly organized society. by shifting more and more of our human and institutional and social capacities into this endeavor, it's creating a, it's making it possible to imagine and even struggle for a world where that's what we do with our, our energies, but we don't just make poor women do it for everyone else. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. We talk a lot about, we talk a lot about that on this podcast, like how uh, collective care could be like truly socialized and collectivized and distributed more evenly throughout society. So it's not just uh, poor women and women of color in particular who are doing all this work, right? Because it is good. (laughs) It is good to care for people. We need to be doing that. Uh, That is essential, essential labor, but we gotta, you know, there's gotta be a better way. Um, Okay. That points in two different, I have like two more questions at that. I think we got time. It points to both of them. 10 minutes or so. So I'll just, I'll just start with one and then go to the other. All right. So talking about essential workers, right. The COVID pandemic has thrown really a new spotlight onto which jobs are truly essential um, you know, all this ballyhooing about essential workers, um, putting up, you know, there's like the thing we were doing for a while where you would like clap for essential workers yeah. at 7 p.m. The, and I would the be like, Blue Angels would have flyovers of hospitals. You know, yeah, like, you know what they could really use beyond claps is money. Um, but like, how do you see this classification 
as essential workers mediating these struggles um, for better wages and conditions going forward. Like I say mediate because it could be a good thing or a bad thing, right? Yeah. Like, like what you talk about in your book is, you know, it could just as easily be used to say, hey, your labor is essential, therefore you're not allowed to refuse it, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, I got to say the Blue Angels thing. You just made me think of like you know, airstrikes on hospitals, which are like something that is obviously inside this country's repertoire. We've done it before. Yeah. Um, yeah, usually and elsewhere, but maybe as the yeah. contradictions heighten, we'll get some of that action at home. Who knows? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, first of all, if you talk to a healthcare worker about the past year, I've had this experience many times. If you talk to a healthcare worker about the year that they've had, um, they now almost uniformly, in my experience, will laugh and roll their eyes or snort or whatever at the phrase essential worker. Um, and that's not because they're denying that they're essential, that they're necessary, that what they do is important, but because of how, you know, empty that the, the meaning of that has turned out to be. Um, it was very important for the few weeks that people were free, refusing to go into work. I mean, that's really what it was, was there was this grand campaign, you know, starting with politicians, but then also pushed through the media, actually starting with capital to say, like, we have to we have to convince these people to come back to work because it was something like a, a covid strike that was spreading as people didn't want to go in and die. Convince, coerce, you know, all of the above. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I think that, as you say, Jamie, that that doesn't answer the question of, of how it will go in future months and years. But I, do, I have some kind of cautious optimism related to what I was saying a minute ago, because I think, first of all, the sector is going to continue to expand. Right. I mean, the same basic contradictions that drive it have driven its expansion for 50 years are going to continue to operate. Home healthcare is going to continue to be the largest, you know, fastest growing job in the country. Um, so it's going to continue to expand, and our collective social dependency on it for various kinds of social needs, as we you know remain an incredibly unequal society, will persist. And you know that alone gives gives workers some amount of confidence, I think, generally. Um, but second. I, I, you know, this is speculative. I don't know if this is true, except just anecdotally from talking to people. But um, I just think if you do something like this, if you're a hospital boss and you do something like this year, your image never recovers from it with your with your workers, right? I mean, um, that doesn't tell you anything about whether those workers are going to be able to organize themselves and overcome various barriers of distrust among them and economic pressure on them and all of that. But I think the fundamental damage to the authority of the administration of a lot of these institutions is going to be pretty severe. Um, people, I think, will remember, or in my experience, do remember the moments when, you know, the, I mean, UPMC, for example, the CEO, I can't remember his salary offhand, but it's like $8 million a year or something like that. Sure, reasonable nonprofit salary. Um, and, you know, that institution, right. Uh, you know, that institution has just grown like titanically and everyone who works there knows it. Um, and, you know, people remember not you know being told they couldn't afford hazard pay, but, you know, the shit PPE they had in the beginning I and mean, all of this stuff. Um, and so it seems to me that it's another of these cases where the pandemic doesn't change, but intensifies and reveals a kind of underlying dynamic that was happening before it and will continue after it. And... Um, you know, I think that 
that is likely to, my hope is that that is likely to lead to heightened forms of class struggle in, in these industries. You know, I think we even see a very limited expression of this in um, the 400 billion that the Biden administration is gonna allocate it to home care and community-based services. Um, I mean, that is the result of healthcare workers struggle over not just the past year, but the past couple decades. Right. That has created. I mean, that's the reason that like these normal Democrats thought that's a good idea to do. Um, And, you know, it's where I mean, that's a kind of a victory. It's obviously it doesn't resolve the fundamental issues. Um, But I think even that kind of tracks for us or indicates for us, um, you know, the growing sense that the way the industry works is just like not acceptable. Yeah. 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 And not um, just that industry, but I think more and more facets of life, certainly in America, but all over the place. And you see this with waves of strikes and riots and giant manifestations all over the world um, and insurrections like we saw here last uh, last yeah. summer. Yeah, it just seems wildly unsustainable. <laughs> like we have what Nancy Fraser calls the crisis of care. Right. Like people are and, and Marx predicted the service economy of any capital right now. And it's really stunning how even back then he was like, yes, all the workers, you know, quote unquote, freed up by automation. They will not find new jobs. Um, they're going to become servants to the capitalist class. And he did not even know how <laughs> right he was. Only now it's like, oh, any like PMC averagely employed person can have a servant from the underemployed underclass. And that's something we talked about with Aaron Beninoff too, but they can pretend that they're not servants. They can pretend that they're not having servants. It's like this weird, uh, weird, Uh, weird dynamic. Instacart and, uh, and all these services that are more and more like taking personal services for people, not even just rich people, but yeah, like middle-class people. And um, not, it's not your personal servant, but it's a personal service that you can use to command somebody else, another worker's labor in order to do social reproductive activities that you would have otherwise been doing. But like someone has to be left holding the bag and you know, that underemployed underclass is less and less able to reproduce itself as time goes on. It's like, what do we do then? And, um, I don't know. I, I always like to take what we have and sort of project it into the future. If things continue this way, because it really seems like the process you describe in the book is less of a cycle and more of a progression, right? Like a steady process, a progression in one direction as the crises of capitalism compound and deepen. So like what's going to happen when all these well-insured old people all die off? Um, tax revenues remain like pretty stagnant. Uh, you can't just do MMT magic for everything. And we have this new population of poorly insured people who are starting to get old. Like, ugh. I really hate thinking about what it's going to be like when that happens to millennials. Because, <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, how how would that even work? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's very difficult to imagine our current kind of public-private social insurance system. I mean, I'm 34. I'm a middle-to-old millennial. Uh, persisting. 30 years from now. I think it's, I, it's for the reasons you say, um, I think that the, we, you know, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe I have it wrong and we could sort of do another kind of new deal and we could kind of establish new kind of actuarial basis for doing a kind of uneven securing of the working classes again, 
Um, but it seems to me like the basic dynamic of more and more that you just named of more and more people becoming servants of one or one kind or another um, is fundamentally linked to the overaccumulation of capital, uh, which is unlikely to be you know changed and should not in some way. Be, I mean, we don't want another round of industrialization. So, you know, in that sense, there's no there's no basis for anything except for the deepening and deepening and deepening of the cycle. Um, and that is why I think that it's possible to struggle in the short term or the near, even the medium term, maybe for reforms like, you know, re-regulation of the labor market, improved health insurance, these kinds of things. And that that is less likely to trap us back into a kind of 50s like set of compromises is because I don't think those compromises are going to be available. And so if we can reestablish more working class power and organization on that basis, is then likely likelier to open us onto a wider set of things we could contest. I like One how, can only hope. I like how clear headed you are, like as a Marxist, as a communist, you're like, I know, I know you can't go back. You know, I know, I know like so many of these reforms are ultimately going to reach some limit, but at the same time, you have to keep pushing the struggle forward. You have to keep doing it because what other option is there? Yeah. I mean, and in fact, you know, the, it's not just that you can't go back, but that over time, the legacies of past victories, you know, change meaning and corrode and, you know, don't, aren't even necessarily gone. Right. So, I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about today has been the kind of reach 80 years later of things that the CIO won or 90 years later, right? The things, the things that the CIO won, compromise that it struck, and ways that those remain with us in complicated ways and have served as kind of instruments or mechanisms for the increasing socialization and exploitation of labor, both. And that's like a very paradoxical thing. We have to assume that we will encounter our own paradoxes. Yeah, yeah. we have to be comfortable with paradoxes. I think that's like one of the main missions that all of us have as communists or Marxists or whatever is to kind of live within that realm, understand the paradox and the contradictions and, and whatnot. We love our dialectic, we love don't it. we, folks? We just, now we have the trialectic. It's good. It's three lectics. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, now that yeah. Trump isn't in office anymore, we can do Trump voice and it's not cringe. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of cringe, no, but I don't care. Cringe. <laughs> it's cringe and I don't care. That's the name of this episode. Cringe and <laughs> I don't care, even though it wasn't cringe at all. Corny communism. That's us. <laughs> that's us all over. Um, yeah. I mean, just like final thoughts. Like, what are the political stakes of this book? Um, what do you hope people take away from it? What lessons do you hope they learn? I mean, I know what I'm taking away from it which is, you know, I've had my my own suspicions confirmed that we cannot simply return to this uh, this quote unquote golden age of capitalism, which is never all it was cracked up to be in the first place. As you really illustrate with all these accounts from um, workers who even even like the so-called aristocracy of labor, they were just like angry and fucked up. Their wives were angry and fucked up. Uh, black people were angry and fucked up. It wasn't really working that well for everyone, even at its height. Um, but but what do you what do you hope people take away from this? What do you hope people do? I guess you know what I hope people do is uh, try to think about the ways that the working class is structurally, materially, internally divided and differentiated. 
right? That that's a, that is a part of the, the the nature and structure of it historically, and you know, it's part of capitalism. It produces that differentiation, but simultaneously, that, that differentiation always produces a potential unity, a potential organization, and potential recomposition. Um, so the very thing that around which the working class fragmented, like I was describing before, right? Who was inside and who was outside the New Deal social compact? That led to all this reliance on these weird hybrid institutions that kind of bridge the inside and the outside, hospitals and nursing homes, the healthcare system. And decades later, I think has now created an opportunity for rebuilding some kinds of solidarity, uh, you know, across lines of race and gender and age uh, and, you know, labor market position. Um, so I think, you know, we have to simultaneously acknowledge, like, you can't just be like, workers, we're all the same, unite, because like people have, you know, histories and structural positions and relationships that orient them ideologically and produce their consciousness. Uh, and you can't just, you know, awaken the workers like this is like Sleeping Beauty by like saying the right things. Um, but nonetheless, that set of contradictions um, always offers points that we can operate that will generate more unity tomorrow than we had yesterday. Word. That's great stuff. Thank you so much. Excellent book. Um, excellent conversation. People will put the, uh, the link to the book in the show notes if people want to have a deeper dive. But uh, this was an excellent episode, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is really fun. Oh, yeah. Take care.